As we heard earlier in our story on the Islamic calendar, we are in the month of Ramadan, which began a week ago on April 12th and will end a little more than three weeks from now on May 11th. One of the five pillars of Islam is fasting during Ramadan, refraining from food, drink, smoking, sex, and anger from sunrise um, to, sun, uh, to sunset. In addition, I should add that the spiritual practice of Ramadan is about much more than just what you don't do. That's, that's a lot of what you hear about. Oh, all these things you can't do. But it's also about refocusing one's freed up time and energy from not doing all those other things to spending more time in prayer and reflection and community. So for UU Muslims who are members of this congregation and all who are observant, Ramadan Mubarak, or as sometimes said, Ramadan Kareem. May you have a blessed Ramadan. And for anyone who has friends and family members or colleagues who are observing Ramadan, may we be supportive and compassionate toward anyone fasting this month. Ramadan also feels like an auspicious time for our annual sermon on Islam. So by way of introduction, let me share a few statistics with you. As you can see from the um, column on the right in green, there are approximately 1.9 billion Muslims in the world today, uh, which accounts for about 25% of the almost 8 billion people in the world. That makes Islam the world's second largest religion. Uh, over on the left in red, you can see Christianity is the single largest religion with about 2.4 billion adherents. And in the center in yellow, the Hindu tradition is the third largest with 1.2 billion. Now, if we go from 2020 and fast forward 30 years to 20, 2050, these are the projections. Uh, that Islam is expected to grow from um, 1.9 billion to 2.8 billion adherents and to shift from 25% of the world's population to about 30%. You can see that many of the other religions, including Christianity, are also growing if we go from 2020 to 2050, but Islam is growing more rapidly, primarily because it's, it tends to be dominant in countries with an overall uh, younger population. Um, we extrapolate two decades further still to 2070, that is the point that Islam is currently projected to be, to become the world's largest religion. Now, without going into the whole 1400 uh, year history of Islam, which we do not have time for, let me give you just one other historical point of reference that makes this current growth all the more remarkable in comparison. If we were to turn the clock back to 1914, so that's the end of World War I when the Ottoman Empire was broken up, there were about 240 million Christ, uh, Muslims in the world, and Christians outnumbered Muslims 2.5 to 1. So there's been an almost eight-fold increase to go from 240 million Muslims at the end of World War I to 1.9 billion today. In comparison, a little more than a century ago, the number of Muslims alive in 1914 worldwide was not much larger than the, Mus the modern Muslim population of just the modern nation of uh, Indonesia alone. Let me give you a few related data points in our own country as well. You can see again, so third from the right uh, in green, though it's very tiny, 
that there are 3.8 million Muslim Americans today, and that's about 1% of the 330 million total people here in the U.S. If we extrapolate out to 2050, Muslim Americans are projected to double to roughly 8 million, uh, but will still comprise only about 2% of the U.S. population. So again, without trying to get into the whole uh, really interesting history of Muslims in the US, which we've explored in more detail in previous sermons, there has been a significant shift in the number of Muslim Americans following the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act. That 1965 change was really big. Basically what we did was take out all, a large part, but not all of an incredible white supremacist bias in our uh, immigration policy. And as a result of that, there was a huge influx of, you know, Asian Americans um, comparatively, but also if you compare like, you know, just after 1965 Immigration Act to today, you had about, you know, a quarter million Muslims. Today you have, um, I mean, 250,000 Muslims. Today you have 3.5, 3.9 million used to have about two, uh, less than 200 mosques in the US. Now we have more than 2000. So it's you know, still a small percentage of the population, but significantly more uh, widespread. And I know that's a lot of data, but more important than remembering any of those specific numbers is just giving you a sense of the overall trends. And if I could ask you to remember just one thing as we trace this sermon um, you know, from you know, watching that uh, lime green Islam bar on the right, you know, from 2020 to 2050, growing to 2070, becoming the world's largest religion. So if, if I could ask you to remember just one thing, it would be that these soon to be three plus billion Muslims on this planet are tremendously diverse. They are all not in one place and all alike and controlled by the same people. They're all over the place and, and quite scattered. And if I toggle between this map from 2020 to 2050, you'll note that there's you know, growth in each of these, but just also note how widespread and non-centralized Islam is around the world. And although many people's strongest associations with Islam from popular culture, from the Western media, is an Arabic speaking person from the Middle East, listen to what I'm saying. Only 18% of Muslims are Arab. Only 18% of Muslims are Arab. So when I say that the one thing I hope you remember is that these soon to be three plus billion Muslims on this planet are significantly diverse, a big part of what I'm talking about is that 80% of the world's 1.9 billion Muslims are neither Arab nor Middle Eastern. Not that there's anything wrong with being Arab or Middle Eastern. That would be the wrong takeaway from what I'm saying. It's rather, it's just that the reality of global Islam is so profoundly much bigger than the Middle East. As you can see on the map, more than half of Muslims in the world today are neither Arab nor Middle Eastern. Um, uh, sorry, more than half the Muslims in the world today live in Asia. And the country with the largest Muslim population is Indonesia. So if you go over there to Australia, on the bottom right, uh, Indonesia is kind of to the Northwest of Australia. The, so that is the country with um, the largest Muslim population today. It's followed by Pakistan and India, which have the second and third largest Muslim populations today. In the words of a religion professor from American University in DC, consider that Saudi Arabia, which is what most people think of, you know, Islam equals Saudi Arabia, 
that Saudi Arabia has the 16th largest Muslim population. It's behind Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, Turkey, Iran. And for what it's worth, Saudi Arabia's Muslim population is about the same as China's Muslim population. All this should make us reconsider how we perceive not only Islam, but also the locus of its power and influence. While the Saudi government routinely casts itself as the protector and defender of the faith, they represent, in fact, only a small fraction of the world's Muslims. So along these lines, uh, let me share just a little more about some of the ways that outdated preconceptions about Islam are being perpetuated and how that might be changed. I've been teaching a 15-week undergraduate world religions class this spring at Frederick Community College, and I'm very grateful. I only have two more of those lectures <laughs> to do. I'm glad I've been doing it, but it's been a lot. So I've been thinking a fair amount recently about how the various world religions are taught. My first formal introduction, like I mentioned at the top of the service to Islam, it was in the late 1990s when I took an introduction to Islam class as an undergraduate religion major. And I feel fortunate that prior to September 11th, 2001, the college I attended, which has a, you know, really invested a lot in its religion department, had the foresight, really seeing kind of the writing on the wall of some of the trends that we have noted, that they already had the foresight to hire a full-time professor of Islamic studies. So I'm grateful for that opportunity to begin studying Islam in depth from an expert in the field. And for many years, though, he was the only professor teaching Islam at the college, whereas we had like multiple flavors of Christianity, you know, in the Christian tradition represented by professors. Uh, and his focus was mostly on the Middle East and mostly on ancient Arabic texts, which, don't get me wrong, are really important historically, but they represent less than 20% of Muslims today. And that's, the, uh, and that's the case with many institutions of higher learning. They either have no experts in Islam or they have one expert who has a focus on the Middle East and ancient Arabic texts. In more recent years, I was glad to learn that my undergrad alma mater has hired another religion professor in addition to the one that was, who is still there. Uh, and this new one has a specialty in Hindu and Muslim communities in contemporary India and Bangladesh, which helps account for the living experience of more than 80% of the world's 1.9 billion Muslims who are neither Arabic nor Middle Eastern. Uh, I'll share my uh, screen with you to say a little bit more using some slides. As critiques of the field of, in religious studies are increasingly pointing out, we should be wary of outdated equations such as this one, that Islam equals Middle East plus Arabic plus text. And that unfortunately is still the way a lot of job descriptions for professors of Islamic studies read. You need to have a specialty in the Middle East, in Arabic and text. But that anachronistic equation conceals more than it reveals. The truth is that the diverse texts and practices and customs and traditions of the world's 1.9 billion Muslims is much greater than the Middle East and Arabic and texts. Most Muslims do not speak Arabic as a first language, are not typically Arabs by ethnicity, do not usually live in the Middle East, and often refer to texts and practices, customs and traditions, and other frameworks beyond the Quran. Indeed, if we drew a circle around South and Southeast Asia today, more Muslims would live inside that circle than beyond it. The top 10 most populous Muslim countries include only two that are predominantly Arabic speaking, Algeria and Egypt. Turkey, 
famously uncertain if it's part of the Middle East also cracks the top 10. The remaining are located in Asia and Africa. So that means that some of the following are prevalent, if not major, Muslim languages beyond Arabic alone. Urdu, the uh, national language of Pakistan, estimated to be the world's third most spoken language. Malay, spoken by 290 million countries, uh, such as Indonesia, Brunei, Malaysia, Singapore, Turkish, spoken by 170 million people worldwide. Persian, spoken in Iran and other countries. Indonesian, spoken by 156 million people. Even English is a prevalent, if not major, Muslim language. Yet the formula, Islam equals Arabic plus Middle East plus text, persists. And that's the kind of um, myth that I'm seeking to help us explode. Again, if you remember only one thing from our focus on Islam this Ramadan, I hope and the invitation is to expand and reimagine our associations with words like Islam and Muslim to be increasingly inclusive of the world's 1.9 billion Muslims, more than 80% of whom live outside the Middle East. To say a bit more, I was glad to learn that our own Beacon Press uh, which is owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association and is regularly publishing incredible books, uh, published a book last year titled Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it is not taking over our country. It's by Sambul Ali Karamali, a Muslim American author and speaker with an expertise in Islamic law. She grew up in Los Angeles, California, majored in English at Stanford University, earned a standard U.S. law degree from the University of California at Davis, then earned an additional degree in Islamic law from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. About a decade ago, she wrote a previous book titled The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, the Media, and That Veil Thing. Uh, and she's also written a book for children and young people ages 10 and up titled Growing Up Muslim, Understanding the Beliefs and Practices of Islam. And in the spirit of expanding and diversifying our association with what um, Muslim means, with what Islam means, I'd like, I should add that she also likes folks to know that as important as her Muslim American identity is to her, she also loves opera, whitewater rafting, reading fantasy literature, Carrie Pratchett is one of her favorites, and watching Star Trek reruns. So there's also a lot more in her recent book than we'll have time to consider. I'll share just a few highlights with you. First, it's important to say that in the wake of concerted efforts in recent years to demonize Sharia law in this country, it can be difficult to zoom out to a broader perspective and appreciate that for most of, uh, that for most of its history, Islamic law, Islamic law, Sharia, offered the most liberal and humane legal principles available anywhere in the world. And for anyone wondering, is that just propaganda? That is an exact quote from the renowned Harvard Law professor, Noah Feldman. His podcast, quite good, by the way. From a world history perspective, Islamic law rates, along with Roman law and, uh, and English common law, as one of the world's three major legal systems, defined as widely influential legal systems that grew past their original birthplace. And it's unfair to judge Sharia exclusively in terms of those who use it for cruel and abusive purposes, unless you're going to do the same regarding the ways that English and Roman law have been used in similarly horrific ways. We also need to consider the ways that historically Sharia has been used to also create a more just society, defend the powerless, establish rule of law, 
and empower women, especially compared to how women were treated prior to Sharia, even worse. If you want to dive into the details, um, Ali Karamali's book has many examples, but in general, I appreciate her point that when you see people sometimes cynically asked on, you know, by journalists or on talk shows or things like that, they corner an average Muslim American and demand that they explain Sharia law. That's like asking the average Christian to define and defend the vast complexities and nuances of, of canon law in the Roman Catholic tradition. On the simplest level, Sharia, the word, it means way or path. And it has the connotation of a way or path toward a freshwater oasis where one's thirst might be quenched. That's certainly appealing in the desert climates in which Sharia originated. More generally, Sharia often refers to the entire system of Islamic jurisprudence, which can be thought of using the equation Quran plus Sunnah plus Fiqh. The, to briefly explain each of those, the Quran is, of course, the central sacred scripture in Islam. You used to see it written with a K. It's uh, better transliterated with a Q. Uh, it's traditionally believed to have been divinely recited to the prophet Muhammad starting in the month of Ramadan. And traditionally during Ramadan, many Muslims recite the entire Quran, which as a point of comparison is about 80% the length of the Christian New Testament. Uh, the Sunnah literally means um, habit or usual practice. They're the words and deeds of Muhammad that serve as a model for Muslims to follow as recorded in written records such as the Hadith. And finally, the fiqh, uh, interpretations of the Quran and Sunnah by the ulama, Islamic jurists and scholars. An interpretation, of course, can make all the difference in the world. Al-Karamali rightly notes that cynical, misinformed, or Islamophobic calls for Muslims to, quote, give up Sharia, that's like telling Christians why don't you just give up the Bible and Jesus's teachings? It's probably not going to be received well. Similarly, when journalists ask Muslims, are you in favor of Sharia? I mean, that's like asking Christians, are you in favor of Jesus? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not a, it's not a helpful question. A more productive approach might be to explore the motivations and the context which have led some people to interpret Sharia in a very just and inclusive and liberating way, and other people to interpret the exact same Sharia text in oppressive um, ways. You know, that, that's a more interesting question. Uh, and, if, you know, of course, there are archaic pre-modern aspects to Sharia law. Similarly, death by stoning, for example, is recommended as a punishment at various points in the Jewish scripture. And until the 19th century, English common law included the possibility of punishing hundreds of crimes, even misdemeanors with death. For anyone who has taken the time to become even passingly familiar um, with Sharia, it quickly becomes clear that only a minuscule fraction is about offenses and punishments. By far the largest part of Sharia law is about personal religious observance and conduct. Even more importantly, it's vital to recognize that there are rarely, if ever, you know, are these laws enforced to their fullest extent, as, of, as is the case with all human legal systems. A little bit of further context for any given piece of Sharia law is that in general, searching out transgressions is prohibited 
and turning a blind eye to private misconduct is required. Here's a significant story that illustrating these points about Umar, one of Muhammad's companions and later the second caliph. It's said that walking in Medina one evening, Umar heard raucous noises emanating from a house. So he climbed over the wall of the house and inside he found a man not only drinking wine, but cavorting with a woman who was not his wife. Umar uh, accused the man of sinning, but the man retorted, whereas he himself may well indeed have sinned. Umar had committed three Quranic sins, seeking out the faults of others, climbing over the wall of someone's house without permission, and entering a home without permission. Umar admitted his faults and departed. As another Middle Eastern prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, once said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And in a similar way, Sharia at its best has been interpreted. The truth is that by and large, the various calls to ban Sharia in the U.S. are usually about cynical and bigoted attempts to increase Islamophobia and xenophobia and not any legitimate reason. And that is because the establishment cause clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution already prohibits Sharia or any other religious law from taking over our country. As many commentators have noted, anti-Sharia laws are a solution in search of a problem. And it's really worse than that, because in many cases, anti-Sharia laws end up as themselves unconstitutional as a violation of the free exercise of religion for Muslim Americans. And that's protected by the First Amendment. We have an anti-establishment clause and a free exercise clause already in our U.S. Constitution. So as I move toward my conclusion, let me share with you one related aspect of the undergraduate Intro to World Religions class I've been teaching this spring. Even as the focus of that class, of course, shifts significantly from week to week as we uh, explore the many different religions of the world, there are at least three major themes. If I can ask you all to remember one thing from a 20-minute sermon, I hope I can ask my students to remember at least three things uh, over the course of 15 weeks. And these are some of the major themes that have been woven throughout the semester. And they can also help us to, in our attempt to reimagine and diversify our associations with Islam and with what we think of when we hear the word Muslim. So let me share with my screen with you one final time. The first is that definitions matter. There is arguably never in the whole history of religion, one singular, uncontested, universally agreed upon definition about anything in any religion. Therefore, regarding any particular definition, notice who decides what, for instance, Islam means? Who decides what Muslim means or what Sharia means or how the Quran or Hadith are interpreted? Who decides who benefits and conversely, who loses out. As the saying goes, if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. So definitions matter. The second is original pluralism. There are religious differences, not only between the world's religions, but profound differences within each of the world's religions. No religious tradition is monolithic, pure, or unadulterated. If someone is trying to convince you that they represent the, quote, one true version of the faith, 
and all other versions are heretical and deviant, they are either ignorant or more likely in denial of the messiness, complexity, diversity that is present in the history of every religious tradition from the very beginning, or they're trying to cover all that up. Another way of saying this is that there have always already been Hinduisms, Buddhisms, Judaisms, Christianities, Islams, paganisms, plural. We could go on with each religious tradition. Definitions matter. Who decides? Who benefits? Original pluralism. And finally, responses matter. Pay attention to how different individuals and groups respond to the exact same texts and traditions in profoundly different ways. In the schema of the Muslim American interfaith activist Ibu Patel, notice how the same religion in different hands can be a bubble, isolating one group as completely as possible from all others. The same texts and traditions can be a barrier preventing one group from interacting with one or more other groups. It can be a bomb attempting to just destroy the other so the other no longer exists. Or it can be a bridge making compassionate connections across differences. Because different individuals and groups can and have responded so differently to the same texts and traditions, the onus arguably becomes on individuals and groups to be responsible for their choices. We have the freedom as human beings to side with love, and we are responsible, I would invite you to consider, if we choose instead to side with hatred and division. If you look closely enough at the history of any religious tradition, I promise that you will find with every single one that they engage in picking and choosing, even if they deny it or repress it. And if we're going to pick and choose, why not choose love? If we're going to pick and choose, and I promise you every religious tradition is, why not choose love? And if we don't, it says more about us and who we choose to hang out with than it does about that text or tradition. If you're curious to learn more, I recommend Ibu Patel's memoir, Acts of Faith, The Story of an American Muslim and the Struggle for the Soul of a Generation. For now, I'll conclude by inviting us to be sure we're also looking in the mirror, and I'll just name a few ways I could say a lot more, but looking in the mirror and reflecting on the ways that our own Unitarian Universalist tradition can sometimes be a bubble or a barrier when we, for instance, use too much insider language or become so celebratory of our self-perceived progressiveness that we fail to appreciate how much we still have to learn or we don't allow ourselves that unless someone is you know, really progressive or inclusive where we just can't be involved with that. That can be our own kind of purity stuff. So just, it's important to be aware of that. So as we prepare to sing our responsive hymn, may we recommit ourselves individually and collectively, recommit ourselves anew to doing all we can in this hurting world to respond to religious and cultural differences by building bridges of peace, of connection, and compassion, choosing to side with love. I'm so grateful to be on that journey with all of you. In that spirit, let's sing together, building bridges. <laughs>